Well, a few things I wanted to just say this morning. Uh, interesting bits and pieces which I have here. This comes from Fatima in Portugal. And Pope Benedict is talking. The heart of the message of Fatima is that following the gospel is the path to authentic peace. Pope Benedict XVI said in a message broadcast on October the 14th at the Marian Shrine. Marking the 90th anniversary of the last apparition of Our Lady of Fatima to three young children, Pope Benedict said, the, sh the shrine continues to echo Mary's call to her children to live their baptismal consecration in every moment of their existence. She is the refuge and the path that leads to God. He told thousands of pilgrims at the shrine for an anniversary mass and the dedication of a new shrine church. During his midday Angelus prayer at the Vatican, the Pope asked Mary to give all Christians the gift of true conversion so that the perennial gospel message which shows humanity the path to authentic peace would be proclaimed and witnessed to with coherence and fidelity. Our Lady did not ask to be admired, invoked or venerated, he said. She asked people to entrust themselves to her. She asked that the hearts of individuals, nations and all humanity would be consecrated to her. As Mary's choice of appearing at Fatima to three illiterate children demonstrates, heaven requires the effort, even seemingly insignificant, of the most humble servants, Pope Benedict said. The other, one, the other thing is, this is amazing, a fiery figure in flames is being hailed as the latest miracle of Pope John Paul II. He has to have certain miracles ascribed to him if he's going to be made a saint. And this fiery figure in flames is being hailed as the latest miracle of Pope John Paul II. <clears throat> the image is said by many to be that of the late Holy Father with his right hand raised in a blessing. It appeared during a commemoration ceremony to mark his death. Details of the figure in the flames have appeared on the Vatican News Service, a TV station which specializes in religious news broadcasts. Vatican News Service Director Father Jarek Sielecki, a Polish priest and close friend of the late John Paul II, described the event after attending a service at Beskid Zajeki close to the Holy Father's birthplace at Wadowais in southern Poland. The pictures are being broadcast continually on Italian television and also posted on religious websites as links to the Polish religious website. And the website, if you want to look it up, www.korazym.org. And he goes on to say, I was so happy that with the picture that I showed it to our local bishop, who said that Pope John Paul had made many pilgrimages during his life 
and he was still making them in death. The Polish priest said, you can see the image of a person in the flames, and I think it is the servant of God, Pope John Paul II. I saw the little picture on the internet. Amazing. But there you are. Right, we're going to look at our little passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10. You know, I worked at this talk yesterday and I was thinking over it in bed last night and I, I, I woke up this morning thinking about the gospel we preach and what we tell the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see the compromise all around us, don't we, of people who water down the gospel and change it. And then I got this email this morning. And listen to this email. And this is, these are the words of a man called David Brainerd. And before the age of 30... He died taking the gospel to American Indians. And it's reckoned that more than any other individual, he was responsible for the great 19th century missionary revival. He died before he was 30. He said at one stage, Here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, the savage pagans of the wilderness, far from all earthly comfort even to death itself, if it be but in thy service and to promote thy kingdom. That was his desire in life. And then later on he said, I declare now that I am dying, I would not have spent my life otherwise for the whole world. And he died before he was 30. And Tozer, who writes some very good spiritual books, in a book the dwelling place of God, man, the dwelling place of God, he says about this, we who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world, or sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats but prophets and our message is not a compromise but an ultimatum. It was a great passage that. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relation agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world, or sport, or modern education. We are not diplomats but prophets, people who forth tell things, not tell out a message. That's what most of the prophets did, they told out the message. Our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. And you see, the problem is nowadays, most people who preach the gospel message, they want it to be popular. They, they, they want to be diplomats. But he says we're, we're making an ultimatum to people that unless they repent, 
they will go to hell. And that's it. And having read that, I've been thinking about the gospel as I was lying in bed this morning. If we are not proclaiming the gospel according to the word of God, we are preaching another gospel. And that, as far as God is concerned, he says it's accursed. If you read uh, Galatians, the first 10 or 11 verses in Galatians, anyone he said who preached another gospel, well, it was accursed. You wonder to those who are preaching a watered-down gospel within our churches really believe that. There's only one gospel. Did you know that? There's only one gospel. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll get round to Deuteronomy eventually. 1 Corinthians 15. And just a few verses from that. 1 Corinthians 15. This is all leading somewhere, I hope. It's worth mentioning. <clears throat> Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. This is the result of the gospel. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. The gospel. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That he was seen of Cephas then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. Of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are fallen asleep. Most of them are still alive. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. He had that wonderful vision of the Lord himself. For I am the least of the apostles, then I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all, yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. That's the gospel. The gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel message in, that Paul said was what he preached. And it's important to get to, to know that. To note that that's a very important chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. It's a very useful chapter when you're dealing with some of the cults. The gospel preached by the Jehovah's Witnesses is a false gospel. They deny the deity of Christ. The gospel preached by the Seventh-day Adventists. They have the same error as the Galatians. They mix in the law and grace. And Paul says that's accursed. The gospel of the Roman Catholic Church. Well we've seen an example of that there. It's a false gospel. It's based on the so-called sacraments and the mass. And it's a mixture of superstition. As we have seen from those statements by the Pope. 
gospel of the Muslims is a false gospel. Allah is a false god. The moon god. Why have the, the crescent shapes all over the place? Because they worship the moon god. He has no sun. Of course, as I have so often stated, the Roman Catholic Catechism says that Allah and Jehovah are the same. But the scripture tells us the gods of the nations are demons. The gospel of the Hindus is a false gospel, providing a pantheon temple of multiple gods. I don't know whether you're listening to the Sunday program today. In, there's there's a, a scourge of monkeys in Delhi at the moment. And they're, they're annoying people, they're attacking people, but they won't do anything about it because there is a monkey god. And these monkeys are in some way representing this monkey god. And the government cannot do very much with them because they are afraid there will be riots if they start culling the monkeys. And these are the people who are having multiple faith services with all our religious, so-called religious leaders. The gospel of the Mormons is a false gospel built on the false scriptures of the demonic book of Mormon with an admixture of Bibles, verses where, it's, where it suits them. And so on. All the gods of the nations are demons. You know, we did a tape some time ago about woolen and linen. God doesn't like things that are mixed. That's what he was trying to get across to the children of Israel. Mixing things. Mixing the good and the bad. A little bit of that and a little bit of this. An admixture of various things God is against. We do not need anything else other than the scriptures. Once you have anything added to the scriptures, beware. It's complete. It's there. The Bible is my total guide for this life and for my journey into the next life. So we must be sure that we come out from among the heathen superstition and the false gospels and proclaim only the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now turn to, go back to Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. The God we worship is not some man-made God. He's not the figment of human imagination. He is God of gods. There are no other gods before him. Scripture tells us neither will there be any gods after him. 
He is the only true God. He's the Lord of Lords. A great God. A mighty and a terrible. And these people had seen the terrifying side of God when they saw him in the holy mountain. And he doesn't regard people. He treats all people alike. And he doesn't take reward. You can't bribe our God. Well, people have this idea that they can they can treat God and, and that he will look favorably upon them because they do uh, some deed on his behalf. He cannot be bribed. He doesn't take rewards. And he executes judgment. He's a compassionate God. He loves the fatherless and the widow. He loves the stranger. Jesus went about doing good when he was down here upon earth. He was compassionate. When he saw those in need, he was compassionate. And compassion makes you do something. Compassion is an active thing. You can't feel compassion for somebody and then not do anything about it. He saw the woman who was mourning because her son was being taken out to be buried and he touched the body. And the man was given back to his mother. The little girl gave him back, gave her back to her parents. He had compassion. And this is the God we worship. He executes judgment of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the stranger in giving him food and raiment. The trouble is, nowadays we have overemphasized that side of the gospel and not maintain strict strictness in preaching the gospel he is a God who is doing all for our good as we saw last week in verse 13 it says to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command thee this day for thy good I was thinking about this also. Everything that God has done for us and is doing for us as we go through this world, it's for our good. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He is our father. And he is doing it all for our good. We looked at those verses last week in chapter 10 verses 12 and 13 where there were five specific things that God required of the children of Israel and we discussed them and hopefully saw as to how they also applied to us there was to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways to love him to serve the Lord thy God and to keep the commandments of the Lord thy God five things there that he wished the children of Israel would do and we noted that the reason God required these tokens of obedience was as far as Israel was concerned 
they were for the good of Israel. And we, then we looked at the pictures. Why God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on Calvary? Why did he come down here? Why did he leave heaven's glory to, the, to come to this sinful world for our good? Why did he send the Holy Spirit into the world? Jesus said, I'll send the Comforter. It was for our good. The Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Comforter. When he comes, he said, he will convict the world concerning sin. And righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the world of sin. Concerning sin. Because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father. And no longer you will see me. And concerning judgment. Judgment. Yes because the ruler of this world. Satan. Has been judged. That's what Jesus said. It was the Holy Spirit. Who convicted me of sin. He showed me that my righteousness. My self made goodly righteous robes that I was wearing that I thought were something good the Holy Spirit pointed out that these were in God's sight like a bunch of filthy rags that's what the Holy Spirit does when he convicts people of their sin and then he convicted me that I was heading for judgment I was heading to a lost eternity. And that warned me. And then I turned to Christ in repentance. Why did he do all this? It was for my good. For my ultimate good. All that God has done for you and me in this world. Is for our good. And I was thinking about this. And you know these people were going about to enter into the promised land. And it says in those verses there. That. We're going to find it. They were on their way. Israel. What does the Lord require of thee? It says in verse 11 that they may go in and possess the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them he constantly reminds them that God had promised their fathers that this land would be theirs now, so let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 and see the promise that was given to their fathers Chapter 12 verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram. Get thee out of thy country. And from thy kindred. And from thy father's house. Unto a land. That I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee. And make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. And curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. 
So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abraham took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And God passed through the land unto, and Abraham passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanites was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain in the east of Bethel and pitched his tent having Bethel on the western Hai on the east and there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord and Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south now I know this is digressing a little bit from chapter 10 in Deuteronomy but in there it tells us that the fathers were promised this land and 400 odd years later from the time of Abraham to the time of going into the promised land I think it was something like 475 years it took before that promise was fulfilled but they constantly kept it in mind promise of God. They knew that that promise would not fail. And God promised Abraham and then he promised the same promise to Isaac and to Jacob. That that land would be theirs. What land? The land which God had sworn to their fathers to give them for their good. You know it's a surprising thing that we don't know much about, we don't know anything I think hardly about Abraham before he was 75 years old. He was no chicken. When God spoke to him and he left where he was living and moved out. He was born in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans in southern Mesopotamia or modern day Iraq. And he took on raising his nephew after his brother Haran had died. We know that he was married to Sarah and that his father Terah led his family up north from Ur of the Chaldees to a city which was called by the same name as his, uh, his, his son Haran. And they, they lived at that place in uh, Mesopotamia. And there they remained until God's challenging call came to Abraham. When Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees, before they moved to Haran, God spoke to him. And it says in Acts 2 that God spoke to him there. And I was wondering, was that the reason why they moved? That Aaron, Abraham said to his father, maybe, this is only speculation, you know, God has called me to leave this place. And Terah 
up sticks and moved to Haran. We don't know why they moved, but they moved from our of the Chaldees up to a place called Haran. And they took his family and lost his grandson, Terah's grandson, Abraham's nephew, and moved from Haran. And then God again spoke to him at the beginning of this chapter and said, move on. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a place that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It must have been a bit of a shock to Abraham. God speaking to him and telling him to move off to a place he didn't even know where it was. How he explained that to his relations, I'm not too sure. But if you were to come to your mother or your father and say, well, I'm moving, where are you moving to? I don't know. Uh, where is it? I don't know. How will you know when you get there? God will tell me. It was strange. But that's what he did. He had to move from thy country. A country which was idolatrous. Worshipping the sun, the moon and the stars. And in the present day Iraq. It's much the same as it is today. It hasn't changed all that much. They still are pagans. And idol worshippers. And then he says, move from thy kindred. Move from your family's surroundings. Those distant relations of yours. You have to move from them. And then he says you are to move from your father's house. Those who are nearest and dearest to you. He had to move from his country. And then from his immediate circle of friends and his kindred. And then he was to move away from his father's house. All those close family ties. He was going to leave them all behind. When we decide to follow our Lord, we may not be called to do what Abraham had to do. Up sticks and move into another land. But we might. Many a missionary has left everything and gone off to serve God. We talk about this young man there who, who, who was responsible for uh, working with the American Indians. However, spiritually the decision is the same if we look at what Abraham did spiritually it's exactly the same when we become Christians we have moved our citizenship we must realise that we are now strangers and pilgrims on this earth we change our allegiance to our country instead of being citizens of this world we become citizens of heaven and we have to get out of associations attached to the world. And that is why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11 Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Oh, he says you are now pilgrims and strangers living in this world. So anything that is to do with this world, get rid of it. In our lives. In a spiritual sense. Those lusts governed by mere human nature and human instinct. And move 
unto doing those things which are led by the Spirit of God. We must sadly realize on a human level that we are not any more of the household of this world. We're not part of this world. But now joyfully we're told that we are fellow citizens with the saints and we're now in the household of God. Abram had to move out of the household of his father. And we have moved out of the household of the ruler of this world and we are now in the household of God. What a wonderful picture Abraham was to each one of us. We're fellow citizens with all those other Christians who have done the same thing as we have done. So we want to rid ourselves of all those fleshly, earthly things. The sin, the Bible teaches, that doth so easily beset us. Oh, how easily we are attacked and give in to that earthly sin. But he says, we are now of the household of God. You know, we have this picture sometimes that everything is going to be easy. But the, Jesus said that Christian life is never going to be easy. And that's why it's treated, we're soldiers. We're in a race. We're in a, a battle. Put on the armor of God. Because we need to prepare uh, to withstand against the wily attacks of Satan. In Matthew 10, Jesus speaks some interesting verses. Whoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. These are serious words. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. This ties in so well with what Tozer said, doesn't it? We'll read that again in a minute. For I am come to set man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Serious words. For many throughout the world these words are very, very literally true. Someday it may come to that over here where a man's household will turn against him. But then we have that wonderful assurance from Peter that we are now of the household of God. Fellow citizens with the saints. 
Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Where it says in verse 13, All this is for thy own good. For thy own good. And this was why Abraham was to get out. It was for his own good. God was going to bless him. God was going to increase his his goods. He was going to be a blessing to everyone in the world. And that would be through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And he says, get thee out of thy country. Get out of the situation in which you're, 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 you're living in an idolatrous situation get out leave it all behind and follow me get thee out it's a very difficult passage apparently to translate in the Hebrew I don't know any Hebrew but apparently get thee out is probably as close as you can get to translating the Hebrew it is literally in the Hebrew text it says go to thee out of thy country go to thee out of thy country go thee Go for your own sake. That's why Abraham had to get out. He couldn't carry on worshipping God in the situation in which he found himself. Not because you are driven out, but because you are obeying God who will shape your future. We saw that text that I had in my bedroom when I was a kid. My times are in thine hands. If we submit and commit ourselves to God, our times are then in his hands. Go thee, because you're going to a new land. We're going to a new land. We're on a different path. We're on a different road. We're on the road to heaven. Spiritually, we need to leave this earthly road behind and follow the road which leads to heaven. The narrow road. Get off the broad road. Go thee, because it's for profit and for your good. And go thee, go thee, get out. And by this its very nature must be essential. To quit all society, to quit all associations with such an idolatrous and superstitious people. God wanted him to get out. Because he couldn't deal with them in that situation. He had a new land prepared for Abraham. Now it's going to take 400 odd years for this to be fulfilled but nevertheless he had to get out Abraham went not for the material gain but because God had commanded him to do so it was his sole motive to follow the will of God without becoming sullied by the distractions of this world that was no small task it was his sole motive his S-O-L-E motive but you know it was also his S-O-U-L motive it was the desire of his heart and uh, the desire of his soul to follow God to a land which he had never seen what an amazing man Another man like Moses. These men had supreme faith in God. Oh that we had that kind of faith today. And you know Lot. He tagged along. 
But as the story unfolds, we see the difference between Abraham and Lot. There are two little things just to note. And I think it gives a, a, a picture into the characters of Abraham and the characters of Lot. Abraham was very wealthy. And although wealthy, he did not let his wealth come in the way as an obstruction of his worship to God. We read of him building altars to worship and of his complete trust in God when he was prepared to sacrifice Isaac, his only beloved son. Even though God had said that through Isaac and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, he still was prepared to trust God to the extreme. We don't read anything of Lot doing anything like that. I don't think we read of him making an altar. We don't have that picture of Lot. What we do have is of a, a very wealthy man as well. In Genesis 12.8 it says and he moved from thence Abraham moved from thence onto a mountain on the east of Bethel Bethel the house of God and there he pitched his tent he pitched his tent he always pitched his tent gave a feeling of simplicity and trust and faith that all his wealth was not important to him he pitched his tent on the other hand if you look at Genesis 13 and verse 5 and Lot who was also went with Abraham had flocks and herds and tents He was interested in the good side of life. He had a materialistic slant. Poor old Lot. He was the kind of... I remember when, when we used to go down for coffee with some of the lads back in Ireland. We used to go down every day for coffee and there were different kinds of fellows. And there were those who drifted in and they, they, they were quite happy. But there were also those who the first thing they did when they opened the paper was to read the stocks and shares to see how their shares were doing. And I think Lot would have been one of those guys. He'd have been the ones to see how his shares were doing. It would appear that wealth and possessions were of more importance to Lot than to Abraham. So when the opportunity came for Lot to acquire the best land in the district, he took the first choice over his older uncle and bagged the fertile plains. Instead of giving old Abraham the first choice, he took it. And he chose the fertile plains, but also that road led down to immorality and materialistic Sodom. But he was prepared to go down that road. What a mess this just man got himself into. Oh yes, he was just. He seemed to be able to maintain some kind of 
of uh, just attitude even in those horrible situations but you see once a Christian trades the eternal for the world's fleeting rewards there's always a danger there's always a danger Lot saw the rich fertile land that bordered the corrupt immoral cities of Sodom and Gomorrah he could have bowed to the opinion of Abraham and continued to live with Abraham and to, 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 to bask in the sunshine of that glorious presence that that old man must have had but he became distracted from the purpose of his journeying they were there to take over this land for God but he was prepared to try and make money out of it so he wanted the fertile plains he wanted to be near the city where there was commerce he chose to sacrifice that spirituality for the materialism available close to the decadence of Sodom and we know the ultimate tragedy the ultimate end of Lot's foray into the, the plains and down into Sodom. He went from the fertile plains to live in the, in the middle of Sodom. The angels came. And what did they say? Escape for your life. Escape for your life. Nothing else. That was all he took with him. All the material gains, all the worldly influence which he had was lost and he left Sodom empty handed what a tragedy what a tragic life his life ended up with nothing to show for it if he had just stayed with his uncle Abraham a man whom God had promised to bless and honour what a change that would have been depressingly I think like many Christians today prepared to linger near the city of the plains daily vexing their righteous souls as, soul, as it says of loss it says he vexed his righteous soul and these Christians are prepared to vex their righteous souls because of associations with the world around them when they could be dwelling in the sunshine of God's eternal love Abraham pitched his tent something simple about him pitching his tent as he went around in that land pegging it out for God and 400 years later we come to that passage in Deuteronomy they were about to enter into this land to fulfill the promise which God made to Abraham Isaac and Jacob these blessings which God provided were for Abraham's good always for our good like Abraham we pitch our tent as we go across our life's span on this earth may we pitch at Bethel the house of God and avoid the cities of the plains leading to a barren and fruitless life when God has promised us such rich blessings every day his blessings are new every morning you know there's a hymn and I'm closing with this 
There's a hymn we used to sing, and it's a lovely hymn. Forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be. Life from his death is in that word, tis immortality. Here in the body pent, absent from him I roam, yet nightly pitch my moving tent, a day's march nearer home. My father's house on high, home of my soul, how near at times to faith's foreseeing eye thy golden gates appear. Ah, then my spirit faints to reach the land I love, the bright inheritance of saints, Jerusalem above. I hear at morn and even, at noon and midnight hour, the choral harmonies of heaven, earth's babel tongues all power. Then, then I feel that he, remembered or forgot, the Lord is never far from me, though I perceive him not. Forever with the Lord, forever in his will, the promise of that faithful word, Lord, here in me fulfill. With you at my right hand, then I shall never fail. Uphold me, Lord, and I shall stand. Through grace I will prevail. So when my latest breath breaks through the veil of pain, by death I shall escape from death and life eternal gain. That resurrection word, that shout of victory, once more, forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be. Amen. So let it be.